0: I invite the rest of you to stand for the reading of God's Word in honor of His Word. We'll going to be reading from Philippians 1, beginning at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning again. You'll forgive my gravelly nasal voice. Your winter has given me my second cold of the year, so I am uh, recovering though. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, we're preaching through Philippians in RUF large group this quarter, and. Uh, this text, I had two sermons I wanted to preach really badly, and I had to choose one. And then when I was invited to come to be with you guys, I was so excited because I get to preach the other one. So um, thank you. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive into God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for gathering us here this morning. We thank you for your word um, that speaks to us. God, thank you for speaking to us, for making yourself known to us. Lord, we could not know you if you did not make yourself known. And we pray now that as we open your word, that you would make your gospel known, that you would make Christ known, that he would be proclaimed, treasured, and honored in this room. Um, God, help us by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, perhaps you've uh, received in the mail, if you support a missionary or an RUF pastor, an update letter or a thank you note. Um, I have to write these now. Uh, I never read them when I was a lawyer uh, supporting people, so um, I, I, it's kind of an odd thing to write something that I know many people won't read, but um, Paul is writing an update letter in the book of Philippians. Um, he's writing to a congregation he loves. He's saying thank you for a gift they've given him and he's, he's helping them to, to telling him how his ministry is going. Uh, now it's, it's going in a kind of mixed way. It, Paul, uh, Paul planted the church in Philippi around 50 AD, um, and he visited that church twice, uh, but then for the last five years or so, Paul's been in prison on a journey to Rome, and he's likely writing this letter from house arrest in Rome. Um, and uh, Paul loves the Philippian church. He planted this church. These are his people. Um, And he's telling them how it's going for them. They're concerned about them. They've heard about his situation and they're hurting for him. So he's writing to them to tell them how it's going and to thank them for this gift that he's given them. But he's not just writing a thank you note. He's not just writing an update letter because Paul is the consummate pastor. Paul can't open his mouth without pastoring his people. And so he uses this opportunity to update them on his life um, as a way to pastor and counsel them. He wants to help them see how he interprets his ministry and how things are going um, so that they might do the same. Um, his, their progress and joy in the faith is his desire in verse 25 we see. So we get a window both in this text and this book more generally into how Paul sees his ministry, but then also how Paul wants us to see the ministry in our own lives um, and our place in it. So it's a great text and an appropriate one. Uh, for this Sunday. Um, the text includes a beloved verse and kind of a surprising verse. The beloved verse is this uh, verse 21, right, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, you put that on the bumper sticker, you put that on the mirror, it's, it's beautiful and it's wonderful. Uh, but it's also kind of ambiguous. Um, what, what exactly does Paul mean when he says to live is Christ? It can mean a lot of things. Um, And it does mean a lot of things in some ways. Uh, But in the context, to understand that, we need to understand the the surprising aspect of this passage, which to me the most surprising aspect is at the verse verse 18, at the end of that second paragraph, right, where Paul relates this fact that people are, his enemies, his rivals are are preaching for bad reasons, and yet he rejoices. He kind of says, whatever, I don't care, Christ is proclaimed. Um, What I'm going to hopefully see this morning is that understanding that aspect of Paul's letter here understanding why he can rejoice even though his enemies are proclaiming Christ for the wrong reasons is the key to understanding what he means by to live as Christ um, and he wants us to have that same heart he wants us to have that same chorus to say to live as Christ and to die as gain for Paul the priority of his life and the criterion for his rejoicing is the proclamation of Christ That's what I want us to see and Paul wants us to be the same way why can Paul rejoice? Because Christ is proclaimed. Um, so we're gonna look at that in three parts this morning. First, the priority of Christ proclaimed. Second, the nature of Christ proclaimed. And then third, some implications for the ministry of Christ proclaimed. So Paul's updating us on his life, right? he's, he's telling us what's happening, but he's doing it in an interpretive way, right? He's doing it kind of like a teenager, right? Who comes to you uh, having done something bad, right? Mom, I I yeah, I backed over the mailbox. But it's really actually good news, right? Because it needed a new coat of paint and I'm going to fix it up and it's all going to be great, right? He's he's telling us what's happening, but even more than that, he's telling us how he feels about what's happened because he wants us to feel the same way. He wants to shape how we interpret Paul's situation. And for the Philippians, they're prone to be very sad, right? Because his situation, he hasn't backed over the mailbox, but it is somewhat dire, right? After 10 years of relatively fruitful ministry, not relatively fruitful, the most fruitful ministry of all time, Paul's now in prison. People warned him not to go to Jerusalem, and he still went, and he was thrown in jail. There were plots against his life. Eventually, he appealed his way to Caesar, is sent to Rome, is shipwrecked, almost dies, and is now in Rome. And for the last five years, he's been off the field, right? He's written letters, but he's not been fruitful. It looks like he might die in prison. This is not the story of profound success, or at least that which we would think. And yet the heart of Paul's response to this is in verse 18. I rejoice, he says it twice. I rejoice at this situation. I rejoice at the last five years. I rejoice at my place in Rome. And it's in explaining this curious statement Right? that we get to this famous statement, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so as we unpack what that means, we want to look at the context of the passage. Right? He says, I rejoice, and then he gives us some reasons. The first reason is maybe what we expect him to say. He says in verse 19, I, I trust this is going to turn out for my deliverance. That's why, or that's, that's why you're rejoicing, Paul? You, you think it's going to come out well? and. And he does trust it's going to turn out for his deliverance. But then in verse 20, there's a twist, right? Because what he means by that is not exactly what we think it might mean. Because he says that his eager expectation and hope is this, that he won't be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So why is Paul rejoicing? because Christ will be honored, right? He will be delivered, whether that's out of prison or to the Lord, but Christ will be honored and Paul will rejoice. That's why he says to live is Christ. If we look at the greater context of the passage, that's what we see again and again. That first paragraph in 12 to 13, right? What does he want them to know about his situation? What has happened to me? That's all he uses to describe what's actually happened to him. It's quite a thing, right? It served to advance the gospel. Verse 13, it has become known that my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 14, not only has it become known, but because of that, the brothers are more bold and encouraged to share the word of truth without fear. And then we have this curious text in the middle, this paragraph, right? Some of those people in Rome who are preaching the gospel are doing it because they don't like me or they're jealous of me or they're trying to afflict me, Paul says. And we can imagine what that is, right? Sadly, in Christian ministry, there are personal rivalries. Um, And they're doing it for the wrong reasons. And Paul basically says, whatever, right? Whatever. And this is Paul, this is the same Paul who in Galatians Right, when there are false teachers, uses borderline bad language and anger to, to yell at them, right? Paul gets really worked up about false teaching, but someone who's going out to preach the gospel because they want to have their own glory or they want to afflict Paul in prison, Paul's like, whatever, I don't care. Christ is proclaimed, so I'll rejoice. I'm in prison, but Christ is made known. My rivals are winning and and afflicting me, but Christ is proclaimed. And I might die, but Christ will be honored. And he goes on to say at the end of our text that if he does live, what's the result of that going to be? It's going to be that the Philippians would have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul's about. and This is what he means when he says to live is Christ. When I was growing up in the '90s, we had these shirts. I don't know if y'all had them here. It said "Baseball is life" or "Football is life." And um, back in the day, when you had big T-shirts that said things on the front of them, right? That's kind of Paul. For Paul, Christ is life, and particularly the proclamation and honoring and making known of Christ is life. And if you ask him, "Is your life going well?" He's going to say, "Is Christ being proclaimed? Is He being honored?" Now, then the question raised, is raised, well, is Paul special, right? That's just Paul, right? Paul doesn't mean that for us. You know, Paul's got quite a story, and he's an apostle, right? Yes and no. Yes, Paul is special. Paul's an apostle, and that's a big deal. And his office is unique. And there are people in the church today who have unique offices. Jeff is your pastor. He's been called specially to get up here on Sunday and proclaim the word of God. There's also a general office that applies to all of us. And Paul doesn't let the Philippians off the hook because he's a special apostle. No, Paul again and again wants us to see that this heart, right? Why is he explaining this story to us in a way that says, here's how I feel about it? He's doing that because he wants them to feel this way about it, right? He's interpreting it for them. He wants them to have this same heart. We see this throughout Philippians. Philippians is unique as a book because Paul is more willing in this, in this letter to use himself as a personal example. And when he does, he's doing it because he wants them to see how he processes the world and to see it the same. In verse, in chapter two, he's going to say, rejoice again, right? But he's going to say, I may be poured out as a drink offering. I may be dying, but I rejoice and am glad. Likewise, you should rejoice and be glad. And then at the end of Philippians at chapter 4, he's going to tell them to practice the things that they've learned and received and heard and seen in Paul. Paul is offering himself to them in this letter so that they might see the world the same. When he says to live is Christ, he wants us all to know that to live is Christ. He wants us all to have that vision. And he doesn't see his his recipients of this letter. He doesn't see you. In this congregation as bystanders to the work of the gospel. Again and again in this book, he calls he calls the Philippians partners, fellow workers. They are participators in Paul's ministry, right? And not only that, but they're to do the same. And we see that even in our text, right? What's he excited about his imprisonment in Rome? That it's made the brothers more bold to preach the word. This is not a responsibility just for apostles. And then kind of remarkably, in chapter four, he's gonna talk about Yodia and Syntyche who are two women who can't get along, right? But he calls them fellow workers in the gospel. This is a work for all of us. This is not just a work for pastors and it's not just a work for apostles. And so reading Philippians is really encouraging for me as I step into this call as a pastor to see Paul's heart for ministry. But it's not just for guys like me, it's for all of us. Because Paul is saying, you are my partners in this and I want you to have this same heart. And so then the question turns to us, do we have this heart? Is this our priority? Can we say this? Is our rejoicing conditioned on whether or not Christ is proclaimed and honored and glorified in this world? And if we're honest, um, we'll confess that that's often not the case. It's often not the case for pastors. Uh, we don't see the world that way, right? Our criteria for rejoicing is any number of other things, right? Um, and if, if we were in prison and uh, living seemingly fruitless lives of uh, heading towards death, um, we, would, we would not be rejoicing, right? We would say, man, that, that stinks. Um, and so we need something. To see about the gospel, how does Paul get here? And and what we want to see next is that the reason um, that Paul can rejoice, the reason that Paul can make this priority in his life, is the same reason that the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is proclamation. Um, the nature of the gospel is proclamation, is is part of the good news of the gospel that makes Paul want to go and proclaim it. Um, and so that's where we want to turn next to look at the nature of Christ proclaimed. And here I want to look more closely at this surprising passage here in the middle, right, in verse 15 to 18. Why can Paul be okay with this, right? Why, why can Paul uh, hear about these people who are clearly sinning, right? And not only that, but trying personally to afflict Paul. Uh, why can he just say, what then? Whatever. Uh, and again, think about how he treats false teachers. He's not not a gentle guy when it comes to people who are telling lies. But here he rejoices. The answer, I think, the answer from this text is that the gospel of Christ is fundamentally something that is proclaimed. It is an announcement. It is an announcement about things that have been done. The very shape of the gospel makes proclamation, announcement, the fitting medium to advance it. Why is that? The gospel, as many of you know, literally means good news. Evangelion, evangelical. Good news, and it it wasn't just a term Paul made up. Um, It was was used of, of news from war, right? Victories on the front would send back the gospel of victory, right? The good news back to the city that that the, the, the army had won again, right? The Romans had conquered another piece of land. This was the gospel. And at the heart of the Christian gospel, the heart of our gospel, is accomplishment. Things that have been done. Christ has come. He has lived the perfect life. He has died on our behalf to satisfy the wrath of God. And he has risen victorious over death. The heart of the gospel is about what Christ has done. This is why Paul says, proclaim Christ. These are things that have happened in history. But not only that, they've happened in the course of redemption. They are complete. Christ has fulfilled the law. He has satisfied God's wrath. He has conquered death. And he has secured our way to God. The Christian gospel, friends, is not a life philosophy for people to adopt. And it's definitely not a to-do list of things to do. Christian gospel is about what has been done for you, what has been accomplished for you. And because of that, it is a proclamation that goes out. It is an announcement of good news. This has been done. Compare this with telling your friends about the latest diet, right? The latest fad diet that you've heard, right? Get this, right? If you, if you don't eat these 16 different things, but you can still eat chocolate, right? You're going to lose 30 pounds and be super healthy and attractive, right? Um, when we tell somebody about that, right? We may be really excited about it. We may want to go out and tell people, but it's effectively a, here's a program for you to, f- to, to follow, right? Here's something for you to do, right? The gospel's not like that. To use, a, to use a college example, right? The gospel is friends coming into a room and saying, "Hey, somebody bought pizza and it's in the common room. Right? Come and take it. Right? That's the gospel. Right? Things have been done. Things are complete. Christ has won. It's proclaimed. It's good news. It's good news for you and for me, and it shapes then." how we do ministry, and that's where I want to go third, right? So the nature of the gospel, the nature of Christ proclaimed is announcement. That's the priority of Christ's life, of Paul's life and Christ's life. Um, I want to look at three implications for this and, and think about how it is that we think about ministry, think about personal evangelism, think about our place um, in this world, in Hinsdale, in the Chicagoland area. First, and I think this is really so beautiful and important, it's helpful to me. If the gospel is a ministry of proclamation, if that's the measure of what we're up to, that's the measure of our rejoicing, then it is about ultimately the message and not the messenger. And this is really good news. As we read headlines, it seems like every other month, of some pastor who's fallen, some pastor who's screwed up, right? That would be tempting and and for the rest of the world looking, they're like, oh, that discredits the gospel. And Paul looks at that and and weeps at the sin and yet says, Christ has been proclaimed. That's really good news. It's really good news for me as a young pastor to know that it's not about me because I daily sense how weak I am and what a sinner I am. And yet my ministry is not to proclaim Christopher Colquitt, right? to the students of Northwestern, right? It's to proclaim Christ. That's good news for you and for everyone in this congregation because it means that as we engage with our neighbors and our friends, as we do the work of ministry, as we go along and step alongside the work of ministry, it's not about us and our personal strength, which means that our insecurities and our inadequacies should not discourage us from proclaiming Christ our sense that we haven't quite made it, we're not really put together like that guy is, so we can't announce this message. Paul doesn't care. Paul wants Christ proclaimed because this is an announcement that goes out. It should make us bold. It should also make us bold because our task is simpler than we think. Again, it's not telling somebody about this diet they have to get under, like to, to, to adopt, right? It's telling someone there's free pizza in the other room, right? Um, I think we sometimes hesitate in our personal ministry and then our view of ministry in general um, because we just think it's too big of a pill to swallow, right? We look at our neighbor or we look at the world around us. I think this is increasingly a case in our age, right? As we as we live in this uh, pivot point in history as as America is becoming a not-Christian nation, right? We're going to be a minority in this country. Our values and, and concerns are not the dominant culture. And as we move into that phase of our history, it's tempting for us to retreat into ourselves and to see this church and to see our identity as Christians as kind of this social club where we adopt certain values and beliefs that are very different from the world outside of us. And as we think about the world outside of us, we're like, well, I don't think they're ever going to be part of this club, right? They're, they're like way, way away from this, right? And I can't convince them of these ten things that they think are wicked that I think are true, right? And so, we're, and so we step back. Um, but friends, we need to understand that our job, our role in this gospel ministry is not to change hearts, It's to tell good news, it's to proclaim truth, it's to tell about something that has happened. God changes hearts and minds in ways that are remarkable and beautiful and beyond belief. What we are doing in the ministry, what Jeff does every Sunday up here, is he announces things that have happened. Good news about what Christ has done. You can tell this to your neighbors and to your friends. You can tell this to a world that increasingly thinks Christians are pretty awful people, right? Because we're not asking them to come join our social club. We're telling them about something that has been done in history, has been accomplished for them. Our job is announcement. Third, the ministry we're engaged in is essentially this ministry of proclamation. Why do you sit here? Why do Christians across the world sit here for 30 minutes and listen to some guy monologue, right? No one, no, no one will tell you that's the best way to do, uh, to do uh, convincing people, right? People are not in this age a monologue people, right? We want to have drama and, and dialogue and, and, heaven forbid, don't make someone sit there and listen to you talk, right? Um, why do we do that? Well, because this is the core of what the gospel is because we get up here every Sunday and announce good news. We are heralds of a victory far away, coming back and saying, look what Christ has done. It's, it's interesting in, in churches, um, church architecture changed after the Reformation, um, and it's symbolic, and, and this church is, is somewhat similar. right? But if you go to a Catholic church or a high Episcopal church, um, you'll look at the architecture of the church, and the center of the church is, is the table. Right? Because the the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the sacrifice, that was the center of the service. In the Reformation, and the the pulpit will be off on the side. Um, In the Reformation, after the Reformation, when they designed churches, what did they put in the middle of the of the church? They put the pulpit. Right. If you go to some old Reformed churches, it'll be big right in the middle. Um, That's symbolic of this reality. That our ministry, that the gospel is one of proclamation, it's one of announcement. It's one of good news. And we need to be challenged here, I think, a little bit. Um, I need to be challenged that there's a lot of other things that we want to do as Christians that are really good and important, implications of the gospel that are, that are wonderful. Um, we want to serve the poor. We want to do mercy ministry. We want to go out and love people well, and, and let's do it, right? But there's a temptation, at least I see in my heart, to... Uh, To shift towards doing that sometimes and away from the telling piece of it um, because that's going to win me applause and acceptance uh, from this broader culture, right? The Christian ethic of love is beautiful. It's what everyone aspires to. The Christian message of Christ's uh, coming and salvation, right? That's a stumbling block for some people. And so we don't ever want to lose sight of the fact that our primary ministry is telling good news to people. And when we go out and we love people, we do that and then we tell them the good news. Because you can't really love people without telling them this glorious truth. Um, Romans 10, right, reminds us of this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him if they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We need to, our friends need to believe, our neighbors need to believe in this truth, put their trust in Christ. And to do that, they need to hear the good news. They need to hear proclamation. And so how do we do that? And this is why I wanna close. Um, how does Paul have this heart for proclamation? How does he define his life in this way? And, and how can we do it ourselves? Um, Ultimately, it's the beauty of the gospel that provokes us to make it our priority. It's knowing how wonderful that news is that pushes us in our hearts to share it with others. This is how we work in real life, right? If you see a great movie, um, if you really liked it, you're going to tell people about it. Um, And so, as we think about proclaiming Christ, as we think about our role in the ministry of the church, as we think about our place in the lives of our neighbors, We don't want our primary feeling to be guilt or even duty. Um, We want it to be joy. We're sharing great life-altering news that has changed us. Someone bought pizza in the other room, and it's delicious. You guys should go see it. You guys should go eat it. Um, David in Psalm 40, and I'll close with this, opens with famously, uh, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. David was in a bad place and God delivered him. Then he says in verse three, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. David has experienced God's deliverance and what comes out of that, God puts a song in his heart that he sings to the world. Going on in that psalm, he says in verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden the deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love will ever preserve me. David says, I have not restrained my lips. God, you have not restrained your mercy from me. And those two things sit side by side in how we think about our own life and ministry. God has not restrained his mercy from you. He has accomplished all things on your behalf. He brings you news of great tidings, of great joy that Christ has won. Friends, do not restrain your lips. Do not hide that deliverance within yourself proclaim it. God has put this song in your heart. It is the work of the church and it's the joy that we have that Christ is announced. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Friends, love you. Go in peace. We pray for us. God in heaven, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that it is not a program for us to follow, God, but that it is primarily an announcement about what you have done. Oh, Lord, would you so comfort and pr- Proclaim that to our hearts, um, that we might treasure it, and that we might sing the song that you place in our hearts, that we might not restrain our lips, but that in all of our life we would be engaged in announcing the good, glorious news that Christ has won. Now we love you and praise you, and ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.